0: We have come down from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is in Capernaum and, uh, you know, everywhere he goes, uh, as he's been coming down the mountain, he's healing people. Lepers, uh, the servant of a, of a centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, he's now in uh, his, Peter's house and this huge crowd has come together. He's been healing all of their sick and uh, all of their demon-possessed he's delivered and now... Um, He's going to move on. So why don't you stand and we'll read the word of God together. Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 8, verse 18 to 22. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Or maybe let Lisa's take care of themselves. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'd grant us insight as we look at these Two individuals that have approached Jesus and the responses that they get. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us individually as we may fall into um, one of these categories and uh, that you would encourage us by it, Lord. So, Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's pick it up in verse 18. Who's playing volleyball today, by the way? Okay. All right. Teammate. We're going to have to crush the competition today. Just get them ready. Why don't you guys come watch? It's kind of fun. Everybody gets along. We're all bleeding by the end of the day. It's like Jungle Ball. Anyway, it's exciting. So so it says, uh, the, the context here, of course, uh, Jesus is in Peter's house. And uh, it says, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other Side. Now, it's still evening. It's amazing what Jesus can pack into an evening. Uh, he, he, after he healed Peter's mother-in-law, uh, it was evening. It was probably the very first part of evening. And uh, he's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. And, and there's just now this huge crowd that has gathered around. They won't stop coming. They won't stop gathering. And really, they won't stop putting their demands upon him. Everybody, it seems, is desperate, whether they need healing, they need their child to be healed, and it's just, it's probably exhausting. And uh, there's a number of reasons uh, as we go through the Gospels of why Jesus would dismiss a crowd or why Jesus would try to evade a crowd. And uh, and I, I told, you know, last service, probably some of it had to do with Peter's wife. Uh, this is too many people in my house, and it's a little stressful and a little demanding. But Probably the the biggest reasons is that you have the the Roman soldiers, their duty there in Capernaum, and then you have the issue of the religious leaders. So the Jews had a history of of uprisings. They were an unmanageable people. In fact, they were so unmanageable that the Romans allowed them to not um, pay any regard to Caesar in a religious context. Everybody in the Roman Empire had to to offer incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Jews would revolt, and they had revolted in the past. And so rather than cause unnecessary bloodshed, the Romans gave them a a concession, if you will. They just said, fine, just behave. Pay your taxes, worship Jehovah, whoever you call him, and uh, we'll leave you alone in that regard. Okay? And so with their history of uprising, the Roman soldiers just had to keep a close eye on them. And if, if crowds were gathering outside the city and it was chill, fine. But inside the city, uh, this could be a riot. This could be something big. And so if they felt like this gathering was a danger, Roman soldiers would quickly come in and people would get hurt. And so Jesus probably didn't want that to happen. The other thing is, is that because of the, the religious leadership of Israel... They didn't like any teacher, uh, that especially a teacher that would be popular, that wasn't sanctioned by them, if it wasn't an approved person. And Jesus did not come up through their ranks. He was not recognized by the Sanhedrin, their, the, the, the high council of, of Israel. And Jesus didn't want to get their attention because that would hasten, of course, the, the things that lead to Calvary, to, to the cross, uh, prematurely. And so Jesus looks at the crowds and he says, it's, it's time to go. And it may be very, very true also that he's exhausted and uh, he just can't continue to serve at this rate. And so he needs to get away. He needs a break. In fact, he's going to get on a boat pretty soon because that's the, in reference to the other side. And during a, a crazy storm, he's sleeping. So I think it's okay to assume that Jesus is extremely tired. Okay, he's worn out. So on the way to the lake, says a certain scribe Came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, to begin with, this man is already a disciple of Jesus. He's already a follower of Christ. If you notice in verse 21, uh, after this, it says, Another of his disciples said to him. So, this is, we have these two encounters, two people with Jesus. The first one is this disciple. So, he's already a follower of Jesus, but there's something more that he's seeking, okay? Something more. And what is interesting about this particular gentleman is, is, is that he is a scribe. It was, Matthew thought that it was noteworthy to point this particular detail out. And so I want to just address who these guys are real quick within the religious framework of Israel. They weren't simply someone who transcribed the scriptures from an older copy on the papyri to A new copy. The scribes of Israel, they were the men that were the most acquainted with the law of Moses, especially Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. And these gentlemen were extremely important because they were the ones that would take all of this text of the Bible, all of God's law, and then they would communicate it to Israel because that is the section of scripture that governed all of Jewish life, every bit of it, their worship, all of their religion, all of their civil laws, all social structure, all the way family's supposed to run, everything. These guys had the duty of communicating God's word to them so that they could then follow through. Um, you guys know that not everybody had a Bible at this time. Amen? Uh, and in fact, people didn't, the average person didn't have a Bible until the 1800s. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? So just imagine... Uh, and most people didn 't read, so the value of such a person that could read, transcribe, communicate, and all of that he was he was essential to the life of israel so it 's surprising to see this kind of a person not only following Jesus as one of his disciples but then referring to Jesus as teacher because he was the teacher uh, on the night that Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus is explaining to him uh, some some heavenly truths, he says to him, are, are you the teacher of Israel and you, you do not understand these things? So this man, he is a teacher of Israel. He is one of these men that the, the community of Israel looks to him for biblical teaching, for wisdom, for understanding. And yet he's come to Jesus and he says, teacher, teacher. We know that in Matthew 7:29, it's the last verse in chapter 7. Uh, it's the people's response to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it says they marveled at his teaching because he spoke to them as one who had authority, unlike the scribes. And what that means is that Jesus—they were impressed with Jesus because he was speaking, was who had a authority in himself, whereas the scribes did not. And what had happened was the scribes—they would quote a dead rabbi for authority, his perspective on the scriptures. They would quote that as authority. And then it turns out that there was actually a genealogy of dead rabbis. And so he would quote this dead rabbi who was actually quoting this other dead rabbi. And so there's this lineage of people of authority. But when Jesus preached, he didn't do any of that. He came as the ultimate authority on the explanation, interpretation of Scripture. This is what, and what we find out later, this is what I meant by what I said to Moses or what I said to the prophets. Okay. So he had authority in himself, and he's impressed with Jesus. And it seems that you know, he's already a disciple, but he wanted something more. And it appears that he wanted to be a part of Jesus' most intimate group of people. He wanted to be one of the 12, or the 13th, or whatever. He wanted into that inner circle. Uh, we might say that when Jesus would dismiss the crowds, he wanted to be one of those guys that stayed. When Jesus crossed over... To the other side, he went in the boat. He wanted to be in that inner circle of Jesus, which in itself, you guys, is a, is a good thing, but there may be a problem. So Jesus said to him, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, the wild animals have it better off than the disciples and I do. Have you thought about this? Those boys, uh, when you look at the life of Jesus for those three and a half years, it was just—it bare necessities, right? Bare necessities. But there was also a temptation in all of it. Because as we see, Peter was just home. He's just getting cozy again. And what does Jesus say? We ain't sleeping here tonight. Okay, It's back to sleeping under the stars. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get in a boat. And we're going we're to row across the Galilee which isn't always a pleasant thing, as we'll talk about uh, probably next, yeah, next week. The boys did not follow Jesus for its comforts. It, what is interesting is Jesus made his headquarters in Capernaum where their houses were, but they continued to sleep under the stars. For them, it was a time of sacrifice, even though home was so close. I think that's what makes it harder, right? I mean, if you're out way away from home, that's, just, that's the only option you have. But they hovered around their own community, and uh, they never really got comfortable. This was a life of sacrifice, not luxury. Okay? So Jesus makes all of that known to this very eager, we might even say very self-confident disciple. And, but it's hard here because we don't know exactly what the man's motive is. We can't sense that. We just see Jesus' response to it. So Jesus could be saying to him, hey, by this statement, you need to check your motive for why you want to be this close to me. Or he could be saying, uh, perhaps you haven't counted the cost. Perhaps you haven't weighed the sacrifice in all of this. You see, if the man thought that following Jesus would provide him with this, you know, life in the spotlight in a positive sense, okay, or make him someone important or provide him with, uh, various comforts in this life, as it had done for many rabbis in Israel, he was, he was gravely mistaken. And his motive then would have been impure. And we have to understand also that the, the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry as the disciples followed him around, it was for them easy compared to what would come after Jesus' resurrection. Because soon as Jesus was gone, who was the actual, you know, the, the primary attention of, of the Romans and the Sanhedrin, that which became lethal, that attention then was shifted to the apostles. And by the end of their journey, only one of them was not executed for the faith. So this is a, this is a serious life of sacrifice to be this close to Jesus. If this man was seeking prestige, um, there's no way that he's going to abandon his comforts to be with Jesus. If the ministry wasn't somehow self-serving, he's not going to participate. He would go right back to his occupation. That's if his motives were askew, and Jesus would have known that. But Jesus' statement could also have been just a courtesy to him, just a courtesy. He could have had a good motive for wanting to follow Jesus, but he didn't realize what it would require, what it would take to be that close to him. After all, serving Christ does not look the same for everyone everywhere, does it? I hope we realize that. Different callings require different levels, even different kinds of sacrifice from people. It's just different. Uh, Example is that, you know, one of our missionaries in Africa is in a more dangerous environment than our other two missionaries. The quality of life for one is not the same as the other. The one is in a country with no American embassy or consulate, and evangelism is extremely illegal there. Where it's not, the case in the other one. One pair of missionaries are together with their children. The other one is a single woman and in more isolation. But understand, neither field is more important. And the sacrifice of the one is not of a better quality than the other. It's just different. It's just different. But if you want to go to the one country, you better count the cost more than if you go to the other country. And if you want to go to another country where we have missionaries, which is Peru that will count you, uh, you won't have to count as much the cost. So there's different degrees here. It's all different, but not one is more important than the other. But you must consider what you're doing, depending on which country you want to go to. All of our missionaries have responded to their calling willingly, and they all understood at least to a degree the sacrifice that would be required of them. And they went, but I can see that you didn't go. It's not one is better than the other, it's just different amen, but one will cost you more than another. Jesus may have been saying to this man, this is the cost, this is what it will require of you. So I want you to think it through before you just dive in, okay? I want you to think about it. Now, I like this and um, I think it's because of Jesus that I've employed this when I have people come to me and they say, hey, I wanna do this, I wanna do that. And, uh, and I look at them, and I look at their gifting. I look at how they've done ministry in the past. And there's been times where I say, mm, I don't know. I don't know. And I think it's wise of Jesus. You know. I think it's contrary to what often happens in ministry. If someone is interested in following Jesus in some path, uh, a different path, uh, typically we wouldn't dare say anything that might deter them. But Jesus did. He's saying, this may not be right for you. And now he's not saying to not follow me, because he was following Jesus. It just may be, not be for you to follow me in this manner. Isn't that fair to the person? I think it is. I've had people come and say, I believe God has called me to be a pastor. And I go, Well, how much teaching have you done? Well, none. Okay. Well, then let's get you some teaching opportunities to see if God has gifted you with teaching. And then after a little while, you realize they can't teach, just communication is not their, their thing. And I don't want to encourage that person to continue down that road, a road of disappointment. So what we did by a process of elimination, we learned what your gifting was not. Let's move you over here and see if you have a gift of service. Do you know what I'm saying? If you have the gift of mercy. Let's do something else, but I don't think that this is where God has you. Isn't that fair to that person? It may not be easy for them to appreciate, but hopefully they'll get it. And we see Jesus doing that here. And I think it's a courtesy. I think it's good. We shouldn't expect everyone to follow Jesus with the same level of sacrifice. I mean, if we had a missionary here from North Korea, you know that we have those, right? And Iran and Myanmar and places like that. What if they stood here and said, you need to go with me? God has called you to come with me. That would be very difficult, wouldn't it? And I bet we could all come up with a lot of reasons why God has not called us to North Korea, okay, or Myanmar, yeah. So the last uh, Calvary Chapel pastor in Myanmar, is in, he's in prison, and we have no idea where his children are. There's a sacrifice mm-hmm. there, and we cannot impose that on someone that God has not given them the faith for that and the calling for such a thing, amen? There's so many differences within the body of Christ. God has gifted people accordingly to fit Into a certain part of the body so that they can minister well. You know, like when we see in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 29, Paul says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? And he, he continues on the list there. And Paul asks all these questions in the negative. In the Greek, they all begin with the word not, not. It's not all our apostles, right? Not all our teachers, right? And when a Greek question begins with a negative, it anticipates a negative response. The answer is absolutely not. Not everybody has been called to do those things. What is important is that each one of us as individuals obeys Christ and we give our lives to his service wherever and whenever he chooses as our sovereign. And then he gifts us accordingly. Amen? Wherever God guides you, he will provide for you. And gifting is essential. This particular scribe, it seems, was not called by Jesus to serve like the other 12. He was called to follow Jesus, but just not in that way. Everyone is called to follow. And this brings up a point you know, there's all these callings in the body of Christ, all of the, the gifts that are appropriate for them. There's one calling that doesn't exist. And so there's no gifting that goes with it. And that's the, the calling that doesn't exist is the calling of consumer. Amen. I think in the Western culture of all cultures, this should be said. There's no ministry uh, gift of pew warmer or observer or live stream watcher. It's just not, it's just not there. We're certainly commanded as believers to be hearers or to be active learners of the word, but no one is called of God to just be a hearer and to be an observer. Uh, Paul uses a term, uh, parakaleo, (coughs) and it means to come alongside. And so Christianity is this reciprocal coming alongside of other people to encourage, to edify, to help. Amen? Christianity is both a teaching and a serving Religion, Jesus said that it is better to uh, give than to receive. He actually says it is more happy to give than to receive. If if you spend much time with uh, Hillary Cobb, Pastor Roger's wife, happy, she'll say that is so happy. And but Jesus would say that is so blessed. It's so blessed. It's it's more blessed. He says to give than to receive. The body of Christ is to be joined together by what every joint supplies working together by every part doing its share so that together we grow through the edifying power of love. Anybody know what passage of scripture that is? It's Ephesians 4.16. The body of Christ is to be joined together by what every joint supplies, working together by every part doing its share in order that together we grow through the edifying power of love, Ephesians 4.16. So if someone is a disciple of Christ, they are by nature, by the Spirit of God dwelling in them through regeneration, they are a contributor, not a consumer. Yes, they do receive, but they also reciprocate. Okay, love and service. Here are some examples, I just some things that came to mind. Um, steadfast in prayer. Um, I would love it, especially first thing on Sunday morning if there was a group of people that were praying for me, that when I teach, that I wouldn't just teach to the head, but I would, I, would, I would touch the heart of people. They would feel the conviction of the spirit and that they would be motivated by him. Praying steadfastly for other ministries and people that are sick. By contributing to the needs of the saints, by encouraging others with the word of God. Uh, you know, we say counseling, um, but really we're, we're taking the word of God and we're putting it into people's lives in whatever context it is because we believe that the word of God is sufficient to address all things pertaining to life and godliness, just as, as Peter and Paul declare very clearly. And then providing an example of faith and godliness. Uh, our young people right now, as you know, they're being uh, indoctrinated through everything that the world would throw at them. Well, they need good examples, godly people living by faith. So many things, so many ways that we could contribute To the body of Christ There just are no passive members of the body Following Jesus implies that We're doing something in some way For the sake of others So anyway by saying what Jesus said to this man Jesus was either confronting The man's true motive Or he was telling him to count the cost Some of you may need to be Counting the cost Others of you might need to uh, Have your motive confronted Especially by the Holy Spirit So Open yourself up to the Lord and say, search me and know me. Amen. Figure it out. Yeah. Verse 21, it says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So again, we don't know exactly uh, what's going on, why he's asking this question. Uh, Was this man reluctant to follow Jesus because he was afraid of what his father would think? And so let me first bury my father so that his opinion dies with him and then I'll feel at liberty to follow you. That's possible. Or did he feel the responsibility, you know, especially in a tribal culture, the responsibility of remaining with his father until he could you know, rightfully bury him? What's going on with this guy? The guy wants to follow Jesus, but something is holding him back. Okay? Was it his fear of man or his sense of responsibility? I don't think it matters, by the way. I think sometimes Jesus leaves things ambiguous, so it applies to a whole bunch more stuff. I think this is one of those. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So whatever the the, the reason for this man's reluctance, this is the answer he got. Let the dead bury their own dead. It's very possible that Jesus is saying, let those who are spiritually dead concern themselves with those who are physically dead. Now, when you read Jesus' response can come across harsh, but that's the problem with the written word, right? That's why you should never communicate emotional things by text or email. You should meet with people one-on-one. On On the surface, it may sound harsh, but you know, when we go through the Gospels, Jesus reserved harsh words for the religious self-righteous hypocrites. So I don't think that we see that here with this man, okay? I don't think he's being harsh. I think he's simply saying, listen, there is no reason good enough to hold you back, From following me. The dead always have those who will tend to them, so leave it to them and just follow me. You know, we shouldn't let the fear of man keep us from Jesus. No reputation is worth protecting. No station in life is worth occupying. No pleasure is worth having. No responsibility worth fulfilling. And there's no relationship worth keeping if it keeps us from following Jesus the way that he would have us follow him. Jesus will tell people at all costs and with all of your might, follow me. Let nothing stand in your way. You know, the fear of man, even if that man is your father, it is a snare, Psalm 20, uh, Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-five says. And only those who trust in the Lord will be safe. And see, that's the true nature of, of fear. It puts you in a position of anxiety. You don't feel secure. And so we try to please those that we fear. Does it ever do us any good? No, but Jesus says that those who trust in the Lord, those are the only ones that are safe. The fear of man is a snare, but the fear of God is liberty, is liberty, okay? I think it needs to be said that it's a virtuous thing to fulfill one's earthly responsibilities, like bearing one's father to honor them, but not when that responsibility is in competition with our devotion to Jesus. If you cannot fulfill your responsibilities and follow Jesus at the same time, abandon those responsibilities and follow Jesus. Okay. Man's greatest responsibility is to what? What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. That's the ultimate demonstration of loving God is your obedience to his word. So if we cannot obey Jesus in every context, if we can't honor him with every relationship. We need to repent and we must forsake those things. If you cannot do both while following Jesus, you must follow Jesus. Period. That's just the way God operates. We should make him second to nothing and Colossians 1:18 says that Jesus is to have the preeminence, the that foremost place above all other things. You know, have you guys all of us struggle with the fear of men, right? There's people that we get nervous around. There's people that we're afraid to say things around. I mean, how many of you guys with great ease to share the gospel with everybody you encounter? Why not? Because you're afraid. Let's just be honest. We're afraid. But every step you take toward fearing God rather than man, it gets easier and easier and easier. I was telling First Service, when we would do open-air preaching at the fair, um, the first two days was me getting over myself. And by the end of the week, I would preach to all kinds of people whether it's in the booth or on the path or whatever. But that first two days, it was me wrestling with my flesh, who is the one that really fears man, and my spirit, who fears God. You know, Jesus is the one that said that um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Amen. So fear is a response of the flesh. We have to get over it. And the more that you push against the flesh, the easier it becomes, step by step. You You just have to do it by faith. All right. Two people, two responses. Jesus wants everybody to follow him. He doesn't want everybody to follow him in the same way or the same degree of sacrifice. You have to decide which person you are, where you fit, into all of that. But there's one final thing I need to address, uh, but we're going to have to back up to verse 20. And I think it's the most important thing in the text. As we started in on the miracles of Jesus, we said that we can't have a tendency to make all of this about us. But the focus of these by the Holy Spirit is to make much of Christ. It's to elevate him in our our minds. And I want to do that now. And it's because of something that Jesus says. It's this right here. In 8 verse 20, he says, the son of man. It's the first time that Jesus uses the title referring to himself. And he will use it for the last time in Matthew 26, 64, just hours before his death. He's going to use it about himself 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. And on a number of these uses, Jesus will clarify uh, the significance of the title as we go along, 32 times. And being introduced to it for the very first time, uh, it's easy for us to read over and not pay it any heed. I don't want us to do that this morning, okay? I want us to understand what he's saying. There's only two instances in the Gospels of the 32 times that clarify uh, what Jesus meant exactly and exactly where he got the title. Okay? But those, those passages are at the very end of his ministry. Understand, Jesus was revealing himself progressively as he came to Calvary. Okay? Progressively. So until the end of his earthly ministry, it wasn't clear what he meant by giving this title to himself. The designation is used multiple times in the Old Testament. Oftentimes when God is referring to people in general, the sons of men. But then when he gets to Ezekiel, he begins to call Ezekiel the son of man. And he calls Ezekiel the son of man probably 50 or 60 times. And then when you get to the book of Daniel, he refers to Daniel one time as the son of man. Okay? One time. Until the end of Jesus' ministry, some may have thought... That when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, that he was just identifying himself as one of the prophets. He wasn't. It's not what he's doing. What he does in the end of his ministry in Matthew 24, Matthew 26, he couches the title uh, in a, a particular phrase. So then all misunderstanding would be gone. All of it. Let me show you those passages. Matthew 24, 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it's the phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's what interests us at this point. And as soon as he said it, people started paying attention, even more so. He says it again in Matthew 26. And what's happening here is Jesus is in this, this kangaroo court with the high priest. And the high priest basically says, are you the son of the blessed? Meaning, are you of the same, do you believe yourself to be of the same essence as God? And Jesus says, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power, speaking of God Almighty, and coming on the clouds of heaven. What do the high priest do? He tears his clothes and he condemns Jesus to death. Because if Jesus is not who he said he is, he just made the most blasphemous statement that could ever be made, okay? And even in it, there's an implied threat to the high priest. Because when the son of man comes, as Jesus is referring, he's saying that me and you, high priest, we're gonna switch places and I'm gonna be your judge. It's very intimidating, okay? So you'll see the son of man sitting and coming on the clouds of heaven. Everybody understood. The high priest didn't explain it. He just said to everybody in the room, you have heard it for yourselves. We need to hear it for ourselves. The passage that Jesus is referring to is Daniel's vision. It says this, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Same exact phrase. Daniel saw Jesus in his vision. He is the Son of Man Who came on the clouds. Well, what's so important about that? Is what comes next. Then to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. It's Daniel's vision of the future. when When the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, gives the Son of Man, who is Jesus, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. According to Daniel's vision, all the kingdoms of men will be replaced by the kingdom of the Son of Man. He's going to rule over all the peoples of the world, every nation, ethnicity, and language group. The Son of Man will reign supreme. His dominion, the text is saying, will have no boundaries. Everything in the created universe is going to be within his jurisdiction. And his kingdom will never be conquered. Jesus will rule over the final kingdom that the world will ever know. So what's happening in Daniel's vision is, in his vision, he's seeing the Babylonian kingdom, which was the present kingdom, and then all of the next kingdoms until the final kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Son of Man. That's what he's saying. So you guys, when Jesus walked the earth, he was the king in humility. He was the Isaiah 53, the, the servant of suffering. But when he returns in the clouds, he's going to be the king victorious. At which time every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. This isn't something that we will do. This is something that he as the king will secure for himself. He will come and he will reign. Does that sound important? Jesus starts dropping titles and it start, it's, it's time to pay attention to what he means. So when Jesus says, follow me, we should understand who it is that is calling us. We should understand who it is that we'll be serving, who it is that we'll be abandoning everything for, who it is that we should love above all else. This is the King of glory. This is the Lord of lords. Now, as we go through Matthew's gospel, We're going to be paying close attention to not only the use of this title, but the kind of language that Jesus associates with it. My favorite one is coming next because he does something as the Son of Man and the Pharisees lose their minds. Okay, it's great. And when we get to Matthew 24, we'll talk about the timing of the events that are recorded in Daniel 7. But for now, it's important to know what Jesus is saying when he uses the title the Son of Man. When he takes that to himself, we must pay attention. Here in our story, when Jesus used the title for the very first time, the scribe would have recognized it from the Old Testament. And because of the the ministry that Jesus is doing right this minute, teaching and, and performing miracles, he probably thought Jesus is just saying that he's like Ezekiel. He's like one of the prophets. That's just not the case. This is Lord of the prophets. This is the prophet that Moses spoke about in, Matthew, or in Deuteronomy 18. This is the one that all of Israel is supposed to be anticipating. That will all become clear without any confusion when Matthew 26 comes around. And because of the verdict of the high priest, he will help you know, get Jesus to the place of fulfilling Isaiah 53. Thank you, high priest, for doing exactly what my father already ordained. Thanks for helping me fulfill me as the son of man. We need to understand who this is. But you know, the the beauty is, is that you don't have to wait for two years for me to get to Matthew 26 for you to find out. You can know right now. I would that everyone in this room would not only understand, but trust and yield your life to the Son of Man and His everlasting dominion. That would be my prayer. He's going to reign over the earth, Jesus says, at my Father's appointed time. He said that in Acts chapter one. And nothing can stop Him. But the scriptures tell us that now is the right time to crown him as king of your life and to follow him. Or as the hymn says, it's time to bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't just show up, on, show up in history by surprise, unplanned. He, he's the son of man of prophecy. We thank you, Lord, that in his first coming, he fulfilled everything that you ordained. And he did it literally, according to the prophets. And so, Lord, I fully expect that Christ in his second coming will fill everything else, literally. The king will come back victorious, and he will take his throne, and he will take what belongs to him, which is all of his creation. And Lord, it's for us now to trust him and fall under his dominion. He is a good king. Lord, you have called everyone to follow you. And as we've said, Lord, you haven't called everyone the same way, but nonetheless, everyone should follow. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to every individual in the room about how it is that you would have them follow, and what context for your glory and for the good of the body of Christ. Move in their hearts, help them to evaluate their motives, help them to count the cost, and then help them in faith to do as you command. Grant him your grace, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord, bless you guys.